0: This is Zachary Kemp for Vibe 105. The Occupy Wall Street protest erupted in late 2011 in Zuccotti Park inside New York City's financial district. Protesters gained international attention with their condemnation of social and economic inequalities, and the movement spread to over 80 countries. Michael White, co-founder of the movement, stopped by the Vibe studio to discuss his new book, The End of Protest: A New Playbook for Revolution. What does it say about the state of the American political institution right now when you have protest movements on both the right and the left having common ground in that they both feel like they're not being represented?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a really good question. I think that the so the Clive Clive and Bundy like Oregon wildlife refuge occupation is so fascinating to look at. I think so few people like think about that. I mean, I live in rural Oregon, so I was totally like fascinated with this thing, which is basically that an armed militia goes in and occupies this like literally occupies with guns this uh, wildlife refuge in the middle of nowhere. And it's fascinating. But I think that, so on the one level, you know, I can just, it's fine to disagree with their politics. Obviously, I disagree with their politics. But from a tactical level, it's fascinating that they would do this behavior. But I think that it does reveal a failure of the right because the, the right, what the right seems to lack right now is the ability to they're very naive about social movement creation. And so you can see this because they occupy this wildlife refuge. And for about 24 hours, they had magical possibility. No one knew which way it was going to go. But they failed to spread at all. There was no copycat occupations anywhere. But with the thing with Occupy Wall Street is that's precisely what we did, is we spread everywhere. And so the left is really good at kind of um, mobilizing the grassroots into copycat behaviors that that's quickly spread the movement. And the right seems to be good at doing like... Um, Really intense stuff. Like, I mean, I think their action was probably more intense than any any American leftist has done, like in a really long time using guns. And that's why one of them was killed by the federal government. Now they're all in federal prison, like super intense. And so I think that I do think that the left kind of speaking generally makes a mistake by not paying more attention to the right. And I think that the right makes a big mistake by also not paying a little bit more attention to the like social movement creation tactics of the left. What we need to do is kind of combine those two intensities.
0: On the topic of tactics, I want to ask you about recruitment. You write in the book that social movements should sacrifice short-term excitement for long-term gains. How is that going to translate into larger recruitment numbers? Because traditionally, it's
1: that short-term
0: excitement, maybe a viral video, that brings people in initially.
1: And so at this point, you know, about mass, about bringing in a mass and growing your movement and, and feeling like, well, what if I'm missing an opportunity? I think the thing to realize that's really important, and this is a quote from, you know, a horrible person, Hitler. He's horrible, obviously. But, but he has a very perceptive understanding of mass movements. And he says something, and he says that the people don't vote for the strongest horse. They vote for the horse they think is going to win. And on the left, we tend to think that what we need to be is the strongest horse with the biggest movement, with the most frequent protests. But instead, actually, movements grow when they when the people look at it and say, whoa, this is the one that actually might do this. You know, they might actually win. And I think people actually are waiting for that movement who has a strategic thinking, who's able to say, yeah, I know it's exciting. I know there's stuff going on. But we are biding our time because we have a real strategy for how we're going to get into power. And there will be a point in which we ask you to protest. So get ready. But in the meantime, you know, like keep studying the past keep you know like you know, what i mean get ready and stuff like that so i think it's just matter a matter of convincing people that we are a movement that's going to win versus we're a movement that's going to be really big you know big doesn't cut it anymore we you there's been protests in india of 100 million people like what north american activists have like we think we're so hot stuff but in actuality there's huge protests happening abroad and right. they also don't matter so like we need to stop fetishizing the large mass event. Is the purpose of a protest always revolution? Well, I, de- I mean, it depends who's throwing it. But I think the purpose of pro- – so if you what you know – what is protest? Protest is a collective behavior that its participants believe will create social change. That is what the – that is what the definition of the advocate of protest, and that's what I think protest should be. So if you're involved in a behavior that you don't believe is social – will create social change and you're calling it protest, then then you're doing something else, probably social marketing or um, – and so – and. And I think that a lot of protest has become just some sort of like kind of performance that we play out because it's because it's cool, although it's getting less cool. It was really cool during Occupy, um, but now it's like maybe not as cool, but it's going to be cool again. So there's a lot of people who just do it because it's like, you know, something that their friends do. And I think a lot of people actually have kind of like getting back to this idea of have we given up on the desirability and possibility of revolution? I think one of the symptoms of that is that it's become just kind of like, you know, we used to have punks and now we have like protesters and like we don't. We don't, like, actually believe that, like, smashing bank windows is going to fundamentally change things. But it's, like, what we do to show that we're cool. Like, we listen to certain music, too, and stuff. So, yeah, it's just kind of – it's really important that, I think, as activists, that we only actually engage in behaviors that we believe are going to create social change. And if we have trouble identifying what those behaviors are, then it's time to, like, take a break, study some history, think about things, experiment, try stuff that, you know, is unlikely – you know,
0: the Occupy movement, having spread to over 80 countries, that's quite a far reach. Where do you draw the line for a protest movement not infringing on a nation's sovereignty?
1: Yeah. Wow. So that's such a good question. Yeah. I think there's a phenomenon that's going on. That's kind of like something I call as I call it social movement warfare. This is the idea that we can use social movements to influence foreign governments. And that, in fact, this is already going on <clears throat> so that we might be in a situation that where you can't fight for example, a conventional, like Russia can't fight a conventional war against Germany anymore, but they can um, fund extremist movements within Germany, and they can try to force refugees to, to flee into Europe in order to destabilize Merkel's government, and that they can use social movements to kind of achieve their geopolitical aims. Similarly, maybe America is doing, did this with the Arab Spring and this kind of thing. And these are accusations that the Russian military has actually already made against America, claiming that they call them color revolutions, that these color revolutions are created to. And so so on the one hand yeah I do think that phenomenon exists which is that social movements can be exported abroad in order to influence foreign governments but at the on the other hand there is this beautiful possibility which is that we could create a global social movement that gains sovereignty worldwide and we kind of saw this a little bit with occupy wall street you know and so I think that that the key the key insight is that what we're trying to, what I think where we're where we're going here is some sort of social movement that's able to take power in multiple countries in order to carry out a unified agenda. And maybe it'll be taking power through winning elections in those countries, or maybe it'll be taking power by overthrowing dictators like they did in the Arab Spring. But still, the point is that the people would, would have sovereignty in multiple countries in order to kind of negotiate with ourselves, you know, and we want to solve climate change. We want to do something, a Kyoto Protocol that's really great. Okay, fine. Well, we are, well, we're, you know, we're the sovereigns in 30 countries or whatever is kind of the scenario that we're going for but but I do think that it's important to be a little bit wary like if we watch RT America I don't know if anyone's tuned to Russia's television station in America it always overhypes those protest movements during Occupy it was constantly putting on this stuff that was borderline lies about our movement because it'd be like it would just blow everything out of proportion and be like, the police brutally assaulted 500 occupiers yesterday. And, you know, you're like, you're like, OK, this is this. And, and at first you kind of start to celebrate. But then you're like, wait a second. This is it's propaganda. You are using this. You are using our movement to, to hurt America, which is fine because everyone needs allies and all this kind of stuff. But I think we do need to get more sophisticated in understanding that, you know,
0: how aware are protest movements today about that?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's it's really a complex and nuanced thing because, you know, there hasn't ever been a successful revolution that has not relied on support from outside forces, obviously. Like a perfect example is the Russian Revolution, because what happens is that the Russian Revolution starts in Russia and Lenin is... He's exiled abroad, and no, and and the world is at war, and no country will let him, will give him a train ticket, visas to get back to Russia, except for one country in the entire world. Who is it? It's Germany, who happens to be at war with Russia. So Germany sends Lenin back into Russia because they hope, and they're correct, that he's going to topple the government and immediately institute peace, which he does. He as soon as he gets into power, peace with Germany. So Germany, so Germany, effectively created the russian revolution by getting lenin back into the country and at the time people accused lenin and the bolsheviks of being working for the germans okay so like if you read trotsky's history he talks about this openly they would say oh you're just german stooges and all this kind of stuff had lenin been like i'm sorry i don't accept any support from the enemy german people blah 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 no he had to go back he saw he saw it was a strategic opportunity and so he did it so it's you know we do need a nuanced perspective but i think at the same time it's just it's about talking about openly i mean if you had asked lenin like are you doing this consciously? You said, absolutely. So,
0: we're talking a lot about history. And I really enjoyed that aspect of the book. The fact that all these events are thought out in a historical context made it very. Intriguing. Chapter one opens up with a quote from Hans Delbruck. The quote is about war and how a commander's decisive action in times of uncertainty is important. Do you see the modern protest movement as war?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think that 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 protest is a form of war. And I say that because protest is a way of politics by other means, which is kind of like Clausewitz's definition of war. It's a way of influencing the political regime, changing the political regime without engaging in traditional methods of electoral politics, you know. And so protest is a form of war. It doesn't mean that it has to be violent. Not all forms of war are violent. You can have nonviolent warfare. And and I think that in the long term, protest is more effective when it's when it's nonviolent but still when we think about it in terms of war it's really important because then when you read like if you read a military strategy book like for for example like by bh little hearts you know he'll talk he has a book this great book called strategy and he'll have his principles of strategy and you'll just see that activists are violating like all of them you know like he just talks about for example like never repeating the same tactic once it's failed you know like he'll just he'll just say that like he'll say all of these things that are like have been learned the military has studied what makes battles successful or a failure and they've just generalized Certain principles, whereas activists, because we see we don't understand, we don't think from that perspective, we repeat the same mistakes all the time. But on the other hand, police who are increasingly paramilitary, they do understand that these are a kind of battle, and they and and I and they do study our behaviors and develop counter tactics very quickly. And I remember, in fact, during, when I was at in uh, Berkeley, I remember walking past a building and seeing police like in paramilitary gear practicing how to defeat. Uh, student occupations of of buildings because that was the big student tactic back then. So they're seeing it from the perspective of how do we like learn from our mistakes whereas a lot of activists are not. And so I think it's, it's really it is really important to kind of place ourselves within the context of military science and also realize that getting back to this idea of social movement warfare that social movements are going to basically replace conventional war because you can't you there's no longer possible for like a million u.s soldiers to go to war against a million russian soldiers or like there's never i mean probably extremely unlikely that a traditional world war ii type type conflict is going to happen instead what we're going to see is protests being like isis for example you know social movements that will be used to hurt the enemy and overthrow and so we are we are firmly within the future of war whenever we engage in the art of protest
0: use the hashtag vibe talks to join the conversation on twitter i'm zachary camp for vibe 105